um, he was already arguing for what he called the platonic problem of the one and the many, which is the idea, as far as he's concerned, Babbitt is concerned, that human beings are simultaneously all the same and all different. And so he's interested, therefore, in looking at an omnicultural uh, humanism from the very start. Welcome to the second episode devoted to three brief, intriguing book recommendations related to the humanities and the classics this time. Uh, this short segment follows my longer discussion with Eric Adler, uh, who recently wrote a book uh, titled The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Uh, the book was published by uh, Oxford uh, University Press in 2020. Eric Adler is a professor and uh, also the chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Maryland. Um, our longer discussion addressed the history of the humanities, the views of those who believe that the humanities are at an impasse at the moment, uh, some of the ways to overcome this uh, sense of impasse, how the content of the humanities should be determined, and also the role of uh, globalization within the humanities. So, uh, Eric Adler, welcome again. Uh, tell us about your first uh, book recommendation. Yeah, so uh, one of the books that I selected was uh, Literature in the American College, Essays in Defense of the Humanities by Irving Babbitt, which was published for the first time in 1908. It was an obvious choice when you asked me to come up with three books. That was a sort of obvious choice that I wanted to look at. The book is outdated in some respects. Um, it offers some views that don't fit for today. And yet it is a powerful critique of the philosophical underpinnings of the contemporary college curriculum. And it really sees in advance all the problems that would exist for the humanities today. It's an extraordinarily far-sighted book. It's amazing how forward-thinking it actually is. It argues for a sort of omnicultural humanistic curriculum. In 1908, this is almost 100 years before the fights over the Western canon and its role it should play and so forth. He's already way uh, beyond that particular argument at that period of time. So I feel like anybody who's concerned about the state of the humanities today, who's concerned about the state of the university today, and who wants to really understand in a philosophical way, what are the organizing principles of our universities and their curriculum, uh, that's the book to look at. I do have one uh, brief question about this book. So on the first page of the book, he has an interesting sentence, his opening line, really. He says here, one of our federal judges said not long ago that what the American people need is 10% of thought and 90% of action. So is he framing this debate about humanism as one that's shaped by these two ideas, action you know, versus thinking? Yeah, I think um, what he's interested in is criticizing a certain kind of American utilitarianism that suggests that as long as you act right, you don't really need to think, or as long as you act at all, perhaps, you don't really need to think about what it is that you're doing. And I think that he's suggesting that when it comes to the realm of education, there's a lot of activity going on in the realm of education, but there isn't really that much thought as to how useful this activity actually is. What are the 
intellectual guidelines for what we're doing and so forth. So I think in some ways that's a way of trying to pull the reader into the book that says, let's, let's stop acting for a moment and let's just think. Let's think about what the organizing principle of our curriculum is and what kind of vision of an educated adult it is offering. Because I think Babbitt is attempting to expose the notion that is based on a faulty impression of human nature. And so that's, I think, what he wants to focus on. Is it also in this book that he unpacks this idea of this kind of a new universalism that should underpin the humanities? Yeah, so you do see this idea of the what he calls the platonic problem of the one and the many um, in the book. And so he that is part of what he goes on about. Um, in some senses, Babbitt's books kind of go around in a circle, and you have to sort of read all of them rather than just one of them to get his full understanding of his ideas. They overlap and interlock in essential ways. But even in 1908, um, he was already arguing for what he called the platonic problem of the one and the many, which is the idea, as far as he's concerned, Babbitt is concerned, that human beings are simultaneously all the same and all different. And so he's interested, therefore, in looking at an omnicultural uh, humanism from the very start. This first book is from 1908, so the very beginning of the century. And the second book you are recommending is from the end of the century. So what, what is the second book all about? Yeah, so the, the book I chose as a second book, which was really influential for me on a, for a previous book project, but also um, this book project too, is a book called Defining the Humanities by Robert Proctor, who was a colleague of mine in my first tenure track job when I was at Connecticut College. He is a now retired professor of Italian who has done some wonderful work on the humanistic tradition. And Defining the Humanities, which actually in its original uh, printing was from the 80s, but then a second edition came out in the 1990s, which was called Defining the Humanities. That book really goes through in a very serious way the humanistic tradition from antiquity all the way to the present. And so he makes a number of arguments that I take up in my own book as well. And so one thing that I think is so valuable about Proctor's book is that it really gives readers in one book a kind of full fleshing out of what the humanistic tradition actually is. Now, his curricular recommendations are very different from mine. They're much more classical, Western only, essentially classical only um, in some senses. And so they're, they're, to me, not suitable for the present. But as far as the way in which Proctor gets at what the humanistic tradition is actually about and how it's changed over time is extraordinarily valuable. And you're unlikely to find that in one book. And that's the book I think you should look to if you're interested in that question. I do have a brief question about uh, him as well. Uh, does his perspective overlap with Babbitt's or does he disagree with Babbitt? Well, he when he wrote the book, because I, I talked to him about some of these issues. And I don't think he was that aware of Irving Babbitt when um, he wrote the book. In fact, he may not have known who he was. So I don't think that um, his arguments focus very much on Babbitt at all. He may be mentioned in the book, I can't recall, but if so, he's mentioned only you know, in passing. So the omniculturalism of Babbitt and the omnicultural curriculum does not appear in Proctor. Proctor is more interested in going back to a kind of classical or Renaissance notion of really Renaissance notion of what the humanities are. So he's not as capacious as Babbitt was in his approach to things. But he is concerned about the notion that a humanistic education is about character development. And so he is also interested in the way that Babbitt was, too, in looking back at a tradition 
understanding its history and using it to try to craft the best sort of curriculum for today. Mm-hmm. So there's an element, perhaps a little element of neo-traditionalism in this one. I think so. I mean, again, it, there, you, you could argue that. It seems to me also, you know, to suggest that there's, you know, what's traditional exactly. I mean, there's a long tradition, it seems to me, of a kind of choose your own adventure curriculum such that students now, if they go to college, see this as completely natural. I mean, the idea that you're supposed to go to college and you get distribution requirements that you fulfill by choosing whatever classes meet those requirements and that you choose a major and then you have to fulfill those. I mean, that is in some ways, that's our tradition. And so arguing for this very different approach to the humanities is in some ways, I guess, traditional, because it does look Mm -hmm. back in some senses to earlier traditions. But in some ways, it's really countercultural, because it's not what Americans have experienced in their higher education uh, virtually at any institution for well over 100 years. The third one is uh, thousands of years before that, at least 2,000 <laughs> years before. Uh, so your third book is by Cicero. And by the way, speaking of tradition, uh, so I think we, you know, these days it's pronounced Cicero, but the original pronunciation would have been Kikero, right? Or Kikero? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, the linguists have attempted to come up with how classical Latin was actually pronounced. And obviously we don't have recordings of them, so we can't fully tell, but they've tried to uh, figure this out. And yes, according to classical Latin pronunciation, it would be Kikero which does mean chickpea as well. So it was originally a kind of nickname to one of his ancestors or something like that that, that, that uh, fits him. Uh, but anyway, in some ways, uh, that was a kind of natural text to choose, the pro-archia or in defense of archias, because this is a court speech that Cicero delivered right. in 62 and, BC. And, sorry, yeah, I was sorry oh, to interrupt no. you. I was going to point that out just to make sure that people know the timeline. So yeah, six, 62 yeah. BC, absolutely, yeah. 62 BC, and it's the fullest expression. It's not the only expression from Cicero, but it's the fullest expression of what he calls the studia humanitatis, the studies of humanity, the studies of civilization, which was the kind of chief text both for later Roman writers trying to figure out what the liberal arts and humanistic traditions were going to be, but also in figuring out, or the the sort of philosophical rationale for that tradition, because the tradition pre-existed Cicero, but he ends up being the kind of prime thinker about what is this tradition and why is it valuable, and also is the text that Renaissance humanists were going to look back to uh, most um, uh, uh, fully in order to cobble together their own vision of the humanities as well. So it's a kind of prime document about what the ancients, or at least what Cicero conceptualized as the value of the humanities. And in some ways, it's a different conception from the conception of the humanities that we have today. But at its core, it does try to make certain arguments about both the value of studying the humanities to the individual and making someone a better person, a humane person, but also the value of studying the humanities to the Roman state. That the state, in order to thrive, needs people who are humane, and therefore needs people who have studied the humanities. That's important for the ancients, um, as Cicero is such a prime conceiver of the humanistic tradition. It's important also for the Renaissance, and I think it's important for us today. In this uh, text, he's uh, simply defending this poet. So he's trying to make this argument that Rome needs poets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the way he's defending him, uh, correct me if I just did a little bit of research on this text, yeah. but essentially he wants to make sure that that uh, this poet uh, keeps his Roman citizenship, right? Yes, that's right. So there was a question about whether Archias deserved to have Roman citizenship or not. 
And in part of the speech, Cicero suggests that, yes, he does. And he tries to come up with the technical arguments as to why he actually is a Roman citizen. But then for most of the speech, interestingly, he suggests that even if that's not true, even if he doesn't deserve to be a Roman citizen, he still deserves to be a Roman citizen because he's a great poet. And Rome needs great poets in order to thrive. So he's making an argument specifically about what the studia humanitatis mean to the individual as far as the human betterment that can come across as a result of reading great works, but also that the state can't thrive unless its leadership class uh, is humane. And therefore, the Roman state will fall apart if there's no concern for character development which is something that, you know, millennia later, Babbitt is concerned about for America as well. And let me ask this as my final question then. So in this text, is there a, a maybe explicit or implicit link between humanism and uh, citizenship itself as a concept? For someone like Cicero, he really means an educated elite is what he's talking about. Um, so it is for citizenship of a sort, but it's also for a leadership class of citizens. Those who are going to make political and military decisions for the state need to have a certain kind of education because they need to be benevolent people. If they are not benevolent, decent, humane people, the state will fall apart. And so it's an argument in some senses for a kind of character development, but he's specifically focusing it on Rome and therefore, I think, specifically focusing on elite Roman citizens. All right, great. Well, thank you for the recommendations. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 